Let's turn now to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come before you, we thank you that we do come as those who have hope. Because we come as those who know that your steadfast love never ceases. And that your mercies never, they never come to an end. Now good it is to, to know this hope, our Father. If we, were to, if we were to look to ourselves, we would need to despair, for we see again and again our frailties, our weaknesses. We see our sins, even our active rebellion against you. At times, our Father, we, we wonder how you can continue to love us, and to care for us, how you can continue to be faithful. And yet, as your word teaches us, your faithfulness is dependent upon you and your unchanging character, upon your love that is a steadfast love. And so that we thank you that even though we have committed our sins and are likely to commit sin again, that still you remain faithful to us and that we have that forgiveness that we have once and for all through our Lord Jesus Christ. So it is there upon the cross that we see, that we behold steadfast love. Oh, our Father, we thank you for the riches and all that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you for that salvation that we have from you. So truly we can say that you are our portion. Our Father, we come as your people and at your bidding, us, we make a supplication for this world and for those whom we know and love. Our Father, we pray for a world that in which most people do not know you. They do not know this steadfast love. And we pray for that work of your Holy Spirit to awaken hearts that have been darkened. That you would awaken those who are dead spiritually. We pray that you would use even us, that you would use this congregation, that you would use your church worldwide to declare that good news, that light, uh, to those who are in darkness. Thank you for those who have left their homes, have gone into other parts of the world with the gospel of Christ. Pray that they may be effective in their labors. Our Father, we think of the crew staff at the University of Georgia. And we thank you for the labors that they have carried on because of those labors. Many have come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And we pray for the continuing gathering of, of your fruit, Father. We pray for them as they disciple, particularly new young believers. We pray for them as they disciple your people upon on campus, which clearly they are... are oftentimes receiving teaching uh, that the people whom they are about are far from you. We pray for those who are college students in all the campuses, that you would keep them ever strong in their faith, ever committed to you. Our Father, we pray for our own congregation. We thank you again for work that goes forth from here. Just last night as we were celebrating uh, the work of the food bank, Thank you for laying upon the hearts of people in this own congregation. We 
uh, think particularly of uh, Buddy Cruz, and thank you for that passion that you have given to him and to others uh, to bring the hope of Jesus Christ as they bring uh, food uh, and clothing to those in need. We pray for our own neediness. And our Father, you know all the trials that we go through. You know what is going on in the hearts of each one that is in this sanctuary. Pray that even now that you would minister to each one. For those who are facing illnesses, uh, we pray, uh, Father, for them, for their healing, for them to remain strong in their faith through their illnesses, that you might be glorified. We pray for those who, uh, Father, who are concerned for their children, for their grandchildren. Pray that you may comfort them, and we pray for any of those children or grandchildren who have wandered from their faith, we pray, Father, just as we sang in the hymn, that you would uh, bring them back to you. And then we pray that even now, our Father, as we continue in our worship, that through the hearing of your word, that you truly will be glorified. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I invite you to turn with me uh, in your Bibles to um, the book of Jonah. Uh, chapter 1, and we're going to be reading the, uh, the first four verses and looking at uh, that text. While you're turning there, let me say uh, that it is a, a delight uh, to be here, and not just um, filling in for one Sunday, but I hope for um, many weeks. And I, my wife, uh, Ginger, is up here near the front. You'll see her as we go out because she always joins me for a greeting. And uh, we want to just thank everyone whom we have met so far. It's just been extremely welcoming, and uh, we thank you uh, for that. But now let's uh, look at God's Word, beginning with verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. and There was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Our fathers, we open your word before our eyes. We pray that you would open our minds uh, to understanding your word, open our hearts that we might uh, be examined by your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, responding to the call of God is a mixed bag among the characters of the Bible. God calls Abraham to, to leave his homeland. Here he is, the model of obedience. He's called to leave, he picks up, and he leaves. God calls him to sacrifice his own son. The next morning, he gets up, and he goes out to carry that grievous task. Then there are others who are a bit hesitant when they receive that call. There's Moses. You remember Moses? You know, God tells Moses, go free my people. And Moses says, well, I... 
you know, I, I don't know, if I'm the right guy, and, and he continues to raise these objections, and finally, when God has answered all the objections, Moses says, why don't you send Aaron, my brother? He might be the better one. But there's nobody like Jonah. Jonah, there's no arguing with God. We're just told that he hears the message, gets up, and goes the opposite direction. He just runs, he just runs away. Okay. Now, for six weeks, we're going to look at the story of Jonah. Romans 15.4 tells us, For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So as we look at Jonah, we're going to look at how does that story, how does it encourage us? What, what hope does it give to us? And there really is nothing like this book in the Bible. It's placed among the prophets because Jonah is a prophet, but unlike all the other minor prophets and the major prophets, there's really no prophecy here, not, not for us. It's just the story of a prophet. Now, the other odd thing on here is that the main character, who is a prophet of God, turns out to be the one who really never learns his lesson. It's actually the pagans. It is those who do not know God, do not know his word. They're the ones who are going to have the open ears and give the right responses. It's both a comedy. I don't know if you're like me. I mean, there are times that I've been reading Jonah and I just laugh out loud. It is so funny. And then there's great drama, even tragedy that is here. So let's begin now looking at our text. Starts off, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Now, in the way that the the book of Jonah is written, I mean, you're really tempted to think, well, it's just a made-up story. It's just a fiction work in here. And there are stories that are in the Bible that are fiction. But the writer here, assuming that it is Jonah, I mean, tags him as being an historical character when he says the son of Amittai. In 2 Kings 14.25, there is reference to the prophet of Jonah, and it says he was the son of Amittai. And he served in Israel, the northern kingdom, during the reign of Jeroboam II. Now this story begins with the Lord giving his prophet a job assignment. Okay, So he says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now, this is an unusual assignment. The prophets of Israel and Judah typically were sent to their own people. Now, every now and then, one might be sent to take a personal message to a ruler or a ruler to be in a neighbor territory. And in the prophecies, particularly in Isaiah, Ezekiel, you know, there'll be prophecies to Babylon, to Egypt, and other nations But the prophets aren't actually sent to those nations uh, to preach. But Jonah is. He's the only prophet sent to a faraway city to pronounce judgment on that people. And not just any city. This is Nineveh, the capital of the Babylonian Empire. Now again, as we noted, there's no record of uh, Jonah arguing with God. He simply gets up and he heads in that opposite direction. Let's read verses uh, 3 and 4 again. 
or verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with him to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Now we're not actually certain where Tarshish is. Well, probably one thing is clear. It's in the opposite direction of Nineveh. Nineveh is up there in the northeast. Uh, uh, Jonah is going down to the Mediterranean Sea, which is over here. And he's probably going to try to cross it. Okay. Now, it's interesting, and, and this, is, this is actually the key point here. The passage does not say that Jonah is fleeing Nineveh. No, Jonah is fleeing the presence of the Lord. And indeed, it repeats that phrase there to make sure we understand Jonah's intent here. And you have to ask, and we're going to be looking at this throughout the sermon, what is Jonah thinking? This is a prophet of the Lord God. This is not some pagan who in those days believed that gods were bound to certain locations. And then there's this this matter of a ship. Now, Israel bordered the Mediterranean Sea, but there's very little reference to shipping in its history. There's some reference to it in King Solomon's day. But for whatever reason, shipping, boating on the great sea was not an enjoyable experience for the Israelites. They rarely went on it. And you can just never read about them going on, it's definitely a pleasure cruise. One only took it out of necessity. And so Jonah had to be desperate to take such recourse. So what happens next is expected. It's in verse 4. The Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Now I have this image of God... He's looking down with amusement at his servant who's trying to flee from him. He sees Jonah probably sneaking out of the house early in the morning. He's, he's heading as quickly as he can to the coast. I imagine Jonah has skipped his prayers that morning. He finds a ship uh, heading out. He pays his fare. And he not only gets on the ship, he goes deep down into it. Hopefully out of the sight of God. And that's when the Lord has his fun. He hurls, it's the image that of someone with a spear, he hurls his wind, it creates that mighty storm, it tosses the little ship about, and it's God's message to this prophet saying, where do you think you're going? Okay. Now we're going to leave the ship in peril. We'll look at it more next week. So stay tuned for that. So meanwhile, what is the instruction for us? What are we going to learn that encourages us and leads us to hope, as that uh, Romans verse indicated? Well, the message of this passage is very clear. Sometimes you have to really work at it. Here it's very clear. No one can flee God. No one can flee God because, one thing, God is sovereign. And what that means is that God is the ruler everywhere and over everyone. The common religious position of the ancient world was that there were numbers of gods and goddesses, and each had their own sphere of authority. Some were limited to types of land and to types of work. There were gods of the sea, 
uh, gods of the land, gods of the sky. There were gods for crops, gods for cattle, gods for various trades and and professions. But the Hebrew God, the God of Scripture, the God whom we worship, is whom Jonah describes later on in verse 10. He is the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. That's simply another way of saying that God rules over all. And no one can escape God, certainly by sailing on the sea. God is Lord over the sea. No one can escape God by running to another part of the earth. God is the Lord over the dry land. His kingdom has no boundaries. All the more reason, then, Jonah's attempt at, at escaping is so baffling. I mean, he himself is the one who attests that the Lord is sovereign. So no one can flee from God because God is sovereign, and no one can flee from God because every life matters to God. That's what the rest of Jonah is going to be about. It's going to testify how God cares for every individual, regardless of where they live, regardless of what nationality they may be, Regardless of whatever experience or heritage or race they may be, there is no one in whom God is disinterested. And we're going to see later in this book, and this is where the humor comes in, kind of really the sadness too, this is the very trait of God that Jonah was troubled by. It is that character of God that is going to make him try this absurd attempt to escape God. So what did Jonah, what did Jonah really think that he was doing? Now, I'd already noted that Jonah is not fleeing Nineveh, but the Lord. But here's where I want you to note specifically the wording. It doesn't just say that he's fleeing the Lord, but he's fleeing what? The presence of the Lord. What does that term mean, the presence? You see, again, Jonah knows God is everywhere. He knows that he's Lord over all of the earth, that he's sovereign there. But there is a sense in which the presence of God is located in a particular land, in a particular city, Jerusalem. And specifically, right there in the temple, and even then specifically in the Holy of Holies. And I think what Jonah had in his troubled mind was that if he could distance himself as far away from, you know, what we know to be the Holy Land, uh, Israel, and in his case, in, in Judah, where God's presence is said to reside, then maybe, at least he could kind of get away from God's attention. Okay. He can't escape God, but if he could go somewhere, kind of outside of that domain, he at least takes himself out of being in front of God's presence. Because here's one thing you cannot do. You cannot reject the command of your king and remain in front of his face. Not if you want to live. You need to get as far away as possible from his presence. Stand in the presence of God is to stand before his face. It is to have his face look upon you. 
you know, that, that blessing that we often give. In fact, I'll be giving it. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. That's that same word for the presence of the Lord. Now, being before the presence of the Lord, it can be a very comforting thought. It also can be a burden. And it can even be a terror. Now, in Psalm 139, particularly in verse 7, David says, Where where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Now, in that passage, David is contemplating the sweetness of knowing that God's presence is everywhere. He likes that thought. He likes the idea of God not only knowing where he is, but even knowing his deepest thoughts. In fact, he closes it this way. He says, he says search me, O God, and, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me. Now, I dare say for most of us, and by the way, whenever I say most of us, I mean me, and I'm hoping somebody else is also identifying that way. But that for most of us, the idea of God searching our hearts and, and searching our thoughts, particularly for grievous ways in us, it's not really a comforting thought. Okay? There's a scene in the, uh, in the Fellowship of the Ring. And have you seen it or on the movies or have you read it in the books? The... The companions of the fellowship, they've, they've entered into uh, this territory of Lorien and they meet the elf queen, uh, Galadriel. And there's a point in which she looks at each person for a few minutes. She just stares right at them. And she's examining them. And she's even testing them. They can kind of feel thoughts from her, kind of tempting them. And none of them can stand it. All of them have to turn away from her, her face. They can't stand that. They can't endure it. They cannot stand being so exposed and then even really being exposed to themselves because they began to think of things about their own hearts they had never thought of before. This is what is involved in standing before the presence of God. We're exposed to his examination. An examination that exposes us not only to him, but to ourselves. And how much are we able to handle it? Having our our sinful thoughts, our deeds revealed to ourselves before the presence of the Holy God. And I dare say we're only able to do so, and even then, only to a degree, because we know that we stand before a God who is also merciful and who has provided for our redemption. Most of you are familiar with the scene of Isaiah when he's called by God. And he literally does stand before the presence of the Lord who who is sitting upon his throne. And it undoes him. He cries out. He says, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And the only thing that keeps him together is what happens next. It says this, it's in Isaiah 6, verses 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongues from the altar. 
And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. It is the atonement made for his sins. That's what enables him to stand before the Holy Lord. Because again, to stand in the presence of the Lord in sin is to invite his judgment. So when you look at this and you think about all this, it makes all the sense now that, that Jonah would try to escape this, this presence. He knows again that he cannot disobey his king and then just hang around as though nothing had happened. He certainly cannot stand the, the, the idea of standing before the Lord's face as it penetrates into his heart. Because if he does, and this is the worst case scenario, if he stays in that condition, the Lord's face turns into one of condemnation. Now, however uncomfortable it may be to to stand under the gaze of the Lord as his servant and, and knowing about his mercy and all, it is terror to stand before his presence as his enemy as one who has rebelled against him. The judgment of God is the great terror that awaits any and all who would rebel against him, who will not serve him. And that day will come when the prophets, and Jesus spoke of, when those who have not acknowledged the Lord as God will ask for the mountains to bury them. Such will be the terror of the Lord's presence. So no, we we cannot flee from the Lord. We cannot flee from his presence. And yet, like Jonah, even we who know his mercy will oftentimes attempt to do so because we still sin or we're tempted to sin. And we cannot sin, we know this, we can't sin, at least consciously, and then, and then stand in the presence of God. And so we try to flee. Now, how do, how do we try to flee? Well, the primary way that we try to flee is to flee from everything that makes us think about God. That's what Jonah was doing. I mean, Jonah cannot stay there in the land of God, the promised land, Without now, always everything that he sees makes him think of God. He's got to get out of it. So for us, the fleeing from God's presence might be, well, I think I'll skip my prayers this morning. Or, I'm not sure, I don't have time to read the Bible today. Or, you know, things got a little bit busy. I, that going to the Bible study, going to class, going, going to church, you know, I'll get around to it another time. We make these excuses as we drop away, further and further away from anything that makes us think of God. And there's a great danger to that. Because again, we, we think things, well, when things get back to normal, I'm not so busy, and things kind of get back to the routine, then I'll come back to God. What will happen is that we never do. I mean, you take even uh, the case of Jonah. You know, when Jonah was fleeing from the God's presence, he wasn't stopping 
being a believer of God. I mean, that's, that's why he's running away, because he is a believer in God. But if he had continued, God had not stopped him throwing that storm in his way, then eventually he would have fallen away altogether. Now, God was merciful to Jonah, and he stopped his folly by throwing a storm in his path. And if God is merciful to us, well, then he'll do the same. It's not unusual for God to use storms to stop us in our foolish efforts to flee him. And we would do well, then, to take heed of God when the storms of life come our way. Now, I want to be careful here. Many storms come our way precisely because we are being faithful to God. You can't just say, whenever there's a storm, that means I'm doing a particular sin, and therefore, once I confess that sin, now the storm goes away. Uh, That's not how it works. Well, how then can we oftentimes tell the difference between a storm that is meant to uh, call us back to God or a storm that's just coming our way because we're being faithful? Well, oftentimes the way we can tell is just by our very reaction to those storms. When we complain about the storms, when we complain to God that he should be treating us better, particularly because, God, I'm I'm going to church, I'm I'm doing all this uh, great work for you. I mean, what's, what's with these storms? When we have that kind of attitude, then we probably have already been straying of the path. You see, a heart that is following God expects storms to come. We know that. We'll even welcome them because we know that through the storm, God's testing our hearts in order to purify it and in order to prepare it for his glory. So again, if you find that even now, you know, even now, you've been a bit irritable lately and complaining particularly complaining about your lot in life and and something that's happening, you probably have already been on that ship trying to sail away from the Lord. Now, some of you, and I don't know you yet, so I can just say some of you, and you don't don't have to worry about saying, aha, he, he knows about what's going on in my heart. Some of you might know that you're fleeing to the Lord. You know, sometimes a, a storm might hit you and you were not prepared for it. And now it's making you waver in your faith. Maybe you're angry with God for something that has happened to you. Or maybe you're angry for, because there was something that you have wanted so much and you have never received it. God hasn't answered your prayer and you're angry. It's hit your faith. And you start to, you know, you start to agree more and more with the culture. You know, the, you know this Christian faith stuff, yeah, it is a bit harsh. And maybe, maybe the church is too intolerant, and, and particularly a bit intolerant with that sin that I like so have gotten myself enmeshed in. Well, however conscious or unconscious you may be of fleeing from the God, you'll find yourself growing more and more uncomfortable with those activities that place you in His presence. You cannot stand His gaze. You cannot. Ab- you cannot go to him in prayer 
and thinking of him now looking at you and what's going on in your heart. You can't be around his people and knowing that there's another life that you're living. And you certainly cannot be going to his word and reading that word or hearing the word proclaimed because of what Hebrews 4.12 says of that word, that it is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And that next verse goes on to say, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. I dare say this, this being in the presence of the Lord sounds ominous, doesn't it? Who wants to stand before God? Yes, who indeed? Now, I said at the beginning of this message, I said, you know, we were to go to these stories to learn what encouragement, what hope we can have. And so far, all I have done is basically talked about what should discourage us. There is encouragement and hope. And it lies first in the sobering news that however much we will flee, God, he will bring us back into his presence. And it is in his presence, however terrifying it might seem, that's where we will find our encouragement and hope. And we'll find that hope because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. After that somber passage that I had read in Hebrews 12 and 13, the author then writes these very next words. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And then here are the words. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Brothers and sisters, in Jesus Christ we have one who received a more momentous call than Jonah's and who did not hesitate to obey that call. And after the sacrifice that he made of himself for our sins, he entered into the Holy of Holies before the presence of God. And even now he stands there at the right hand of the Father as our high priest. He stands there interceding for us so that when we, as we enter into the presence of God who is sitting on his throne, we find that it is a throne of grace. And knowing that instead of judgment, we receive mercy and we find grace to help in time of need. Why flee from God? Rather, it is better to flee to him It is better to flee from the world, better to flee from the sin that would enslave us and flee to God. Our Lord Jesus Christ has already paved the path for us. He has already entered into the place of God's presence before us for that very purpose of us, appearing before God's presence 
and receiving mercy. We give you praise, our God, for our Lord Jesus Christ, who in obedience to you came upon this world. In obedience to you took on our very flesh, and in that flesh he made atonement for our sins. It was not with coals from a fire. It was not with silver or gold. It was by his very blood shed for us. But he not merely died, but that he rose again from the dead and he ascended on high as we have already proclaimed that we believe. And he there is now as our high priest. We give you thanks, our God, for our Lord Jesus Christ. And so that in him we know that we may, we do not ever need to flee from you but fleeing to you. In his name we pray. Amen.